Once there was a man, we'll call him Tom, who, who moved into a new house in a new town. And one of the first home improvement projects Tom wanted to do on his property, he put a large amount of uh, privacy fence in, the, the good stuff, the, the vinyl uh, white stuff. It's expensive. It's pricey. It took him a long time. But when he was done, it looked great. A week or so after he got done, uh, somebody stopped by his place of work and came in. He said he wanted to talk to him about his fence. I, he told Tom, the stranger did, I, I've watched you putting that up. It looks really great. And so he asked him about building it and, and where he got it and some other things. And then he finally cut to the chase and asked the question. He said to him, so what's a fence like that worth? And Tom thought for a minute and he said, well, that depends. He said, are you, are you thinking of putting one in at your house? And if so, are you going to do the work yourself? Or are you asking to hire me? Because that changes the price. He said, or, or are you from the assessor's office? <laughs> or did you just drive through it with your car and you're wondering what you owe? You see, the same fence might have a very different value to the insurance adjuster than it does to the assessor's office. It might have a different value to a homeowner versus a contractor who puts them in. The value we ascribe to something can change based on the perspective from which we view that something. Isn't that true? It is. Well, where we pick up this morning in the book of 1 Samuel, young David, the man who's quickly become the hero of this book, he has just killed the giant, Goliath. And he's become an instant hero in Israel. But today... He is going to be received very differently and valued very differently for, by two different members of the royal family, Saul, the king of Israel, and his oldest son, Jonathan. The value we ascribe to something or even someone can be very different, even though we're looking at the same thing. We'll keep that in mind while we read our passage. Just nine verses this morning. Um, if I turn this thing on, we will get started. First Samuel chapter 18, the first nine verses, and they read this way. Now it came about when he, that's David, had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as he loved himself. Saul took David that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved David as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And he gave David his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out, that means he fought in the army, wherever Saul sent him. And he prospered. And Saul set David over the men of war, 
And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's administration, all of Saul's servants. Verse 6. It happened as, as they were coming and going, so that's military language, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can David have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Our passage begins with maybe the, like the richest description of human friendship in the whole Bible. You could, you could talk me into Ruth and Naomi if you know that story. But as far as human friendship goes, this David and Jonathan are about as good as it gets. And we'll see that as we continue through the, the book of 1 Samuel. But... Jonathan is King Saul's oldest son. He is the crown prince. He is next in line to become king of Israel. And we begin by looking at how the crown prince of Israel responds to David, the giant killer. The Hebrew of verse 1 says something like the New American here says, just says that that. Jonathan's soul was tied to David's soul. That's just a word picture of really tight friendship. If you've been reading 1 Samuel for the last five chapters or so, you're probably not surprised that these two would hit it off so well. David and Jonathan have a lot in common. They're, they're very brave, courageous guys. They're, they're, they're smart, wise, capable military leaders for sure but more than that they each have a love for God that turns into courageous faith they they've both they've each done like the bravest military thing in the book Jonathan first and then David last week when he fought Goliath but where that courage comes from is they love the Lord their God so much They trust God so much to do the right thing. But it's sort of like, even if the right thing is me not winning, it's still going to be the right thing. So I just have to do the right thing and let God take care of all the details. So after David's position is uh, made permanent in verse 2, so no more going back and forth tending his father's sheep. He's going to be a permanent fixture in the administration now. After that, we're told that Jonathan, literally the word is cut a covenant with David. We're never told the terms of the covenant. But here's what we know. Uh, A covenant is a solemn, intentional agreement between, in this case, two parties. And this covenant we can tell through the rest of the book, is is Jonathan saying to David, 
whatever happens in the rest of my dad's administration, I'm going to be loyal to you. Another thing these two men share in common is they're well aware of the weaknesses in King Saul. His spiritual weaknesses, his character weaknesses. And and Jonathan Jonathan says, I'm going to be loyal to you no matter what my dad says. Now, the reason ultimately these two men can do this, because seen in a different setting, this is treason, right? This is, hey, we're going to put loyalty to one another over loyalty to the king. And Jonathan will go behind the king's back to aid one who has become the king's enemy. That's treason. The reason they can do this, though, is because they know this about one another. Ultimately, the loyalty of each man is to God, first and foremost, far above everything else. And so they know, I can pledge my loyalty Jonathan knows I can pledge my loyalty to David because David's loyalty is to God. Now, this isn't one of the lessons that I wanted to draw out of this passage and send you home with today, so I won't mention this later. So you're going to get this lesson for free this morning. But this right here is why we get instructed in the Bible as Christians. In the New Testament, Paul commands us not to be yoked together, knit together with an unbeliever. It's not just, that's not a marriage passage. It's just a knit together passage. Don't be, don't give your loyalty and your soul in business, in marriage, in any kind of partnership where the person you are with doesn't have ultimate loyalty to God first. You know why? Because this life is hard enough without that. If, as a Christian, if what you really want is to see God's best accomplished, to see God glorified in your life, that's hard. I don't know if you've noticed. It becomes impossible when I am knit to someone else who puts prophets ahead of the glorifying God or puts excitement or puts fun or puts fill in the blank. It comes even, it makes a hard thing harder when I am yoked together with someone who will not put their loyalty to God first. So that's why these two men can be like, we can be sort of soul knit because our souls have already been given the same power. So we're told told twice that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. That's got a very biblical ring to it, doesn't it? He, uh, He loves his neighbor David as himself. He doesn't think of himself more highly than he ought. Instead, he considers the other first. That's Jonathan's love for David. And in verse 4, we see Jonathan's love for and devotion to David in action. This seems really weird to us. Uh, he makes a covenant with David and then he starts like taking his clothes off and giving them to David. That seems weird. 
um, what's going on here is Jonathan begins taking off and giving to David the stuff that identifies him as the crown prince of Israel. He takes off the robe, the vestment that the crown prince wore. And he takes off his armor, his weaponry. It's been a long time in like sermon land that we live in because we only look at one chunk a week. But it hasn't been very long chronologically in this book when we were told Israel had not been allowed by the Philistines, their oppressors, to have metal weapons, right? Do you remember that? They didn't have armor. They didn't have swords. Only like Saul and Jonathan and a few people around them had that stuff. So when Jonathan starts taking off his armor and his sword and giving that stuff to David, it's very much like Jonathan saying, I want you to be the crown prince, the next king. I don't know if they've had the conversation about what Samuel the prophet did with David back in Bethlehem, but this reads like they have. I don't know if these, if these two friends ever had the conversation where we are obviously BFFs. I don't know if David ever had the courage to say, hey, um, I know you're the crown prince, but the prophet Samuel came to my house and he did a sacrifice and he told my dad that, that God sent me here to anoint one of your sons as the next king and, and Jonathan, buddy, like he picked me. And he anointed my head with oil right in front of all my brothers and my dad and everything. And so I'm pretty sure God wants me to be king. And here's, and Jonathan says, listen, if God wants you to be king, I want you to be king. This is remarkable faith. This would be like, like I don't know, like one of Bill Gates' kids, if he has kids, I don't even know. But if one of Bill Gates' kids saying to one of her friends, you know, I don't want dad to put me in, in his will. I want you to be in my place. Well, won't your dad be upset by that? I don't, I don't care. Like real faith has taken hold when somebody's willing to go, I know what my heart and my flesh would would really want, but when it's not what God wants, I want what God wants even more than what I want. Jonathan wants David to be king, not because there's no part of him that would like to be king, but because God wants David to be king. And so he pledges his loyalty. It's like, I would rather watch as you become king than be, than be king myself. It's remarkable. I love Jonathan. Probably not as much as David loved Jonathan, but I love Jonathan. Now, how did the giant slayer get received by the people at large? In verses 5 through 7, um, we're told a few things. Um, David, David is an extremely capable and uh, savvy military leader. He's really good at this. And so Saul 
makes David the head of his army and to great success. I mean, because David's very talented, he's very courageous, and also like the God of the universe is always on his side, which never hurts, right? Uh, and it goes super well. And so he be- David becomes a super duper star in Israel. And it's not, it's not hard to imagine why. Israel has been under the thumb of the Philistines for decades. And Israel's army, and they don't even have metal weapons for the most part. They start to throw off the yoke of the oppressors. And so David gets really popular. And another thing that always happens in times of military success, the nation starts to write songs that follow military success. Happens all the time. Go back through American military uh, successes, and you will find lots of songs that came out of those times, right? Uh, except for the Vietnam era. We had a lot of songs that came out of that time, but they weren't exactly singing the praises of our military uh, during that time. But still, the music follows the military. Isn't that true? So David's a super, super, super duper star. Everyone loves David. The people in Saul's administration included. Now, they love him because he benefits them. But now, now let's look at how David the giant killer is received by King Saul. Undoubtedly, the songs that get made up in this wave of what we would call patriotism, those songs are they're more in number and they're longer than anything we have on record. We don't have those songs. What we have is one little lyric. This one little, maybe it's a bridge, it's a part of the chorus of one song. There's just this one little line that sticks in King Saul's craw, so to speak. He just can't get it out of his mind. The songs are longer than this. There's more songs than this. But when Saul hears these songs, it's like this is the only lyric he hears. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands. Now, as people sing that song, it's all good news, right? It's all good news. But Saul can't stand it. We can tell it just, he just chews on it. He fixates, fixates on it. Saul is sort of like, oh, come on, people. Does everything have to be about the giant killer? I mean, I'm the king. Yes, he killed the giant, but I'm the one that told him to go do it. Yes, he fought all these battles, but I'm the one that gave him the command. Can't the king get a little more credit around here? Then in verse 8, the second part, Saul says this, What does he lack except the kingdom? Here's what's going on there. Saul assumes that David works like Saul works. Saul assumes the things that make David tick are the same things that make Saul tick. 
we know Saul, what motivates Saul. Saul wants the adoration of the people and the trappings that come with being king. And we've seen over and over, Saul is willing to lie and cheat and steal and scheme and sin to keep that stuff. Right? Well, David, does David have the adoration of all the people? Is he famous? Yes. So Saul, just in his subconscious, he goes, well, he knows David's not going to be satisfied with just that. We never are. He's going to want more. What more could there be for David than to be the next king? He assumes. See, Saul's scenario generator gets the best of him. You know what a scenario generator is? You've, you've got one. And so do I. Your scenario generator is that part of your brain that starts going, oh, I know what he's thinking now too. Oh, and I know what she's going to do next. And I'll bet wherever she's is, I know what she's thinking, right? right? We can imagine what's going on. By the way, try not to live there. There is not truth in that. Just because you can imagine it plausibly doesn't make it truth. Saul's scenario generator gets the best of him. He's so far from that brief season in his life. You know the first time Saul was a military hero? The first time Saul won a victory for Israel? He does it perfectly. You know who he gives credit for the victory? God. He told the people, don't, they do not, they were, people were singing Saul's praises. And Saul said, listen, remember, it's God who saved you today, not me. Saul has fallen so far from, that, from, from then, he doesn't even, it never even crosses his mind that David could actually operate that way. Who does David give credit to? for defeating the giant. God! But that doesn't compute inside Saul. David did not step out there to defeat the giant because, man, if I defeat the giant, people are going to think I'm awesome. David told us he stepped out there to defeat the giant so the people would know God is awesome. Saul, Saul's brain doesn't work that way, so he doesn't think someone else's brain could work that way. It's ironic that he does kind of come to the right conclusion in a weird way. He's like, man, I think if I'm not careful, David might be the next king. It doesn't matter how careful he is, David's going to be the next king. He comes to the right sort of conclusion, but from, from the wrong direction. He thinks David's going to get there by scheming and lying and stealing. So how does Saul receive David, the giant killer? He doesn't see him as a help, as a blessing. He sees him as a rival, as a danger, as a taker. Right? If there's no way in Saul's mind and Saul's heart that I can support David without losing the stuff that's more dear to me. It's like he knows I have to either support me as king or him as king 
which is kind of true, honestly. He's just not about to pick David. And that's our passage. Do you know what an allegory is? Sorry, I used to be an English teacher. Right? You can take the English teacher out of the classroom, but whatever, finish that saying however you... An allegory is like a story on two levels. An alleg- in an allegory, uh, the characters in a story, you can read that story, and there's a real story in just on the surface level of that story, but the characters and the events symbolize other things so that there's a story down here, but there's a symbolic story up here, uh, which is really kind of hard to understand, so I'll give you some examples. Jesus' parables are allegorical. Jesus might tell a story about a farmer going out to sow seed and the seed lands in four different kinds of soil and different things happen. That's a story you can understand. But those things symbolize other stuff that sort of happens up here that we learn from too. Does that make sense? In school, if you ever had to read uh, Animal Farm, George Orwell, Destry, big fan. Thanks for the participation. Appreciate that. I like it too. So in, in Animal Farm, there's these talking animals that take over the farm. And you can understand that that's, that's just the story of how it goes down. But it is also about the Bolshevik Revolution, the Russian Revolution, 1917, 1917. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. I always depend on you, Ryan. Uh, um, Pilgrim's Progress is another one. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, Aslan is a lion in the story, but he's sort of also Jesus, right? You get the idea? Now, we're not reading an allegory. The story of David and Goliath really happened. The stories of David and Jonathan and David and Saul, they really happened. They're not an allegory. It's not made up. I just want you to see, no one could make up a better allegory and write it down today uh, to represent how people, the, the, the death of Christ on the cross and how he defeated the giant and then how people receive the giant killer than what we read last week and this week. Last week when David killed Goliath, I gave us 15 reasons why David was just like Jesus And the giant is this unstoppable force that mocks God and heaps shame on God's people. Goliath was like sin and death. And no one could defeat sin and death. So they needed, we needed a champion to go out on the battlefield and kill sin and death because we couldn't. Right? That's last week. It's not an allegory, but it's it's better than any allegory. God ordained these events to happen to teach us about himself a thousand, thousands of years later. Jesus wouldn't live for a thousand years after this. A thousand years is so long, guys. A thousand years ago, it was 1,022. Europe was still in what we call the Dark Ages. England wasn't even a country yet. So it's not like someone wrote these stories about Jesus and they didn't really happen. They were, these stuff happened a thousand years ahead of time. 
And I want us to see this morning how after David killed Goliath, after the giant of sin and death was gone, people still have a choice in whether they receive or reject the giant killer. The response of Jonathan and the response of Saul has been going on for the last 2,000 years and it still goes on today. Jonathan typifies the response toward the giant killer that that God would love to see from every person about his son. The way Jonathan received David is the way God would want all of us to receive the true giant killer, Jesus Christ. As we read through the story of, of Jonathan, how he responds to David, Did any of you notice how one-sided that was? Let me show you what I mean. We're told over and over about how much Jonathan loves David. We're told Jonathan made a covenant with David. We're told Jonathan loves David like he loves himself. We're not told anything about what David, how much David loves Jonathan. Verse 4, Jonathan starts giving David all these wonderful things. What is David? David just sort of takes it and doesn't say anything. What does David do for Jonathan? He killed the giant. That's what David did for Jonathan. See, this story is not just about two guys who decide to be BFFs. This is the, brave, the former bravest warrior in Israel, Jonathan, was shaking in his boots in a, in a trench or whatever they had. And he knows somebody should go out there and defeat that giant, and I can't do it. And he watches this little shepherd boy come and kill the giant. And then afterwards, this is is what Jonathan says to David, that should have been me out there. I'm supposed to be the brave warrior. And I knew I had no chance against that giant. And you killed him and cut his head off. And so I want you to be king, even if it means I never will be. What Jonathan does is he abdicates the throne. And he says, I would much rather watch you reign than try to build my own kingdom. Jonathan decides to give David everything he has in his power to give. When he covenants with the giant killer, it shows like in his behavior. He says, if you are the one God would allow to kill the giant, then I should be serving you. 
not asking you to serve me. He literally gives up what could be his life to give it to the giant killer. That's a great response. Now contrast that with his dad. Saul and Jonathan are continually presented their foils, their their opposites. And, And no place makes that clearer than this passage does. Whereas Jonathan looks at what David has done, all that David can accomplish, and decides there's no better use of my life than empowering whatever this David is going to do to get David's stuff done. I want David to be king. I will give it all to him. Saul is like, man, if I support David, I'm going to lose out on the things I want in life, and I can't go there. Saul, right, David's only a rival. David is only a taker. David is only a threat. That's why Saul says, oh, come on. We can't make our whole life about the giant killer, can we? Like, we got stuff to do. This is real life. But Saul somehow understands he's got to make a choice. Either abdicate to the giant killer or try to eliminate him. Folks, does does that sound at all like the choice that God has been placing in front of people about Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years? It should. If you believe, if you understand, we'll just say, we'll use that word. If you understand what Jesus did at the cross, that God sent his son to this battlefield to fight the enemy, we could not defeat. He stood in our place. He defeated sin and death because we can't. He absorbed the wrath of God so that maybe we won't have to. If you understand that, that's like, that's like we're right after David walks back into camp holding Goliath's head. Right? The battle's over, but now we have to decide what do we do with the giant killer? We still have a choice to make, like David and Jonathan still had a choice to make. What do you make of Jesus? Like, who is he to you? Like, really? Because there's some, there's some bad lessons you can draw from this passage. One time uh, when we moved to Kansas City, we were visiting churches. Uh, we didn't know where we were going to go to church. We heard a, a David and Jonathan sermon. And the gist of the sermon uh, was basically this. The take-home truth was... You see how David found this friend that was so loyal to him and so supportive of him. Jesus can be that for you. 
Jesus, he'll support you. He will, and, and we got in the car and I said, I don't know where we are going to church, but let me tell you where we're not going to church, here. And that may sound harsh, and maybe it is because Jesus does make himself the friend of sinners and he did come to serve us. But the, Jesus did not come to have a supporting role in your life. He came to be king. He's the giant killer, I tell you. He did not come to, to just play the supporting role. And if you pray things right and believe things right, He's making all your paths straight so that you can make all your dreams come true. That's not what He's for. There used to be this bumper sticker when we were little. Kids, we didn't have social media. So what we did, I know this sounds dumb, but we put our pithy sayings on the back of our vehicles and just went with it. Okay, and there was one that said, Rachel knows what this one is, Christ is my co-pilot. Do you remember that one? Rachel's grandma had that on her car. And I, and I know the sentiment, but then there was this other bumper sticker that came, a cup, came along later in response to that. And it said, if Christ is your co-pilot, you need to change seats, right? Uh, see, maybe if you're honest with yourself, what you want from Jesus is to be a good co-pilot, a good cheerleader to help you get what you want. Maybe. Maybe if you're honest, you still sort of see Jesus in this whole church thing as a rival, as a threat, as a taker. Maybe you've thought or even said things like, oh, come on, does everything have to be about Jesus? Maybe you're just a little turned off by people who are a skosh too churchy and Jesified. Like, you know, you hear them singing songs and the music and it just seems so like, come on, does everything have to be about Jesus? I got a life to live. I got stuff to do. We're more like Saul than we want to believe. Maybe to you, it feels like diving into this whole Jesus thing would mean giving up the best things in life. Maybe you've kept Jesus at arm's length because you know he will want to take from you stuff you are not willing to part with. Listen, I do not judge you if that's honestly where you are at. I have been where you are at. And I was really wrong. I just want you to hear me say from experience, Jesus is not a taker. He may ask you to leave some stuff behind, but it won't hurt ultimately. Jesus is not trying to keep you from uh, having joy. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it way better than I could, and I'll butcher this, but it comes to mind now. He said something like, we, we, we keep Jesus away not because we have these lofty, these too high of aspirations we're not willing to give up. They're too low 
He said it's like we're in, we live when we're trying to keep Jesus away because of what he will take from us. It's like we live in this muddy slum and we're making mud pies and we love our mud pies and we refuse to let God anywhere close to our mud pies and we don't understand he wants to give us a vacation at the sea. He wants to take us out of there and clean us up and give us more than we could ever imagine. But it can seem like amputation when you're going through it. When mud pies is all you've ever known. The ladies' Bible study, they're doing this great study on the book of Hebrews. It's just called Better. The author of Hebrews says, man, if we will neglect this kind of salvation, like where will we go to get something better? Jesus promised to give you, not take more than he will ever give. Give more for longer than you have ever earned and can ever imagine. But sometimes we have to be willing to let Jesus save us from the stuff we think we need that's actually killing our souls. Jesus said, the one who tries to keep his life is the one who's going to lose it. And the one who gives his life away is the one who will gain it. Do you know what he's talking about? Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan was the one who gave away his life to the real king. He is the one who gained the kingdom. King Saul is the one who did everything he could to keep his kingdom. And he is the one who loses in the end. But maybe, maybe you are ready for the first time today to abdicate, to step down from the throne. Maybe you are ready to realize nothing I could build for myself to make myself impressive, to make myself wealthy, to make myself popular, to make myself desirable. There's nothing I could say for myself that's not better than what Jesus will give if I'll give my heart and my life and my will to him. Jesus has killed the giant. But we have a choice to make. And whether we receive or reject the giant killer, and he didn't come to play a supporting role, he came to be king. Don't wait. Abdicate and accept him today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I thank you for the book of 1 Samuel. I thank you for your servant, David. I thank you for your servant, Jonathan. I thank you for the example that King Saul uh, is to us. God, I pray that each one of us daily would make a Jonathan-like decision 
that we would hold the things of our life uh, in open hands, that we would see everything we have only in relation to Jesus Christ, that our desire would be his desires, that our desire would be to watch him rule and reign, that we would uh, be, be able to honestly pray that we want thy kingdom to come We want thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, if there are those here who are struggling with a decision for Christ, whether to believe in him and accept him or to submit to him, if there are those here who are are struggling with things that need to be let go of, I pray that it's in your gentle sovereignty that you would work on the hearts of those struggling those struggles. Help us to see that we can never let go of more than we receive freely from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our giant slayer. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand up and we will finish together.